Hello, and thank you for joining us. I'm Joanne Guo. And I'm Sarah Howard. We are the co-hosts of the Track 2 Podcast. The Track 2 Podcast explores the stories and people who create conditions for a thriving, vibrant society. This season, we bring you the voices of journalists and leaders who are shaping the future of journalism. Today, we're in conversation with Liz Esley White, a reporter for The Wall Street Journal, covering the intersection of life sciences and Washington, D.C. Previously, Liz was a senior reporter at the Center for Public Integrity, where her investigative work has been recognized with a Gerald Loeb Award, a Goldsmith Prize, and more. Before joining the center in 2014 as an American University Fellow, she was the managing editor of a quarterly magazine focused on philanthropy. Liz has also covered local government and transportation for the Washington Examiner, where her reports on insider deals at the local airports authority spurred the U.S. Secretary of Transportation to demand reform. Liz graduated summa cum laude from Hillsdale College and earned a master's degree in journalism and public affairs from American University. I think not having shared news sources is one of those things that's fueling polarization in our society and also just people are not on the same page in terms of reality and what they think is credible. And part of that is because news sources have lost a lot of trust from the people. There are so many passionate journalists out there doing incredible work. It's always powerful to hear from journalists who are on the front lines to get that tangible lived experience. That's one of the things I'm looking forward to in sharing this conversation. Yeah, I really appreciated Liz making time to share and be transparent about the reporting process in the digital age because it's different. Yeah. It's pretty hard to make harassment a light conversation. (laughs) Yeah. We talk about it in the episode. There's a more direct line and tools for threatening journalists, and that is part of the world we live in now. What tools are you talking about? Well, doxing in particular, where it's releasing a private information, whether it's an address, where someone's kids go to school, where a partner might work, those sorts of things. Direct harassment. Mm -hmm. Legal definition of harassment. Yes. I think it also creates this greater sense of urgency and a pressure to get things right. And that adds to the anxiety. Mm -hmm. There's an incredible amount of pressure that journalists are facing, whether that is the harassment that we're talking about or the insecurity of the future of their jobs in the funding model of journalism itself, not to mention whatever subject matter they might actually be doing their work on. And this recognition that distorted reality starts to have influence over your professional career is terrifying. Yeah. This is a whole additional layer on top of their actual work that they're doing. The awareness that that this is happening to journalists is one thing, but we can't easily assign awareness as a solution because despite fact-checking and publishing stories that are incredible and and have high standards of reporting, that in and of itself will not inoculate you from this kind of harassment. No, no, exactly. There isn't an easy multi-step solution to stopping the harassment because the cause and effect relationship dynamic is not typical. And so you're working with this really complex system that can be really exhausting because sometimes you don't get to see the effects of your effort to provide more safety in the space or to get it right as if that would somehow help you be protected, but it doesn't because Whatever you do as an individual journalist isn't necessarily going to have 
direct relationship then with what you receive back. And that dynamic requires a resilience on the part of journalists that is admirable. And definitely one of the things that I hope people walk away with in this conversation with Liz is an appreciation for what this kind of work requires beyond the page that you may be reading. I hope what our audience gets from this conversation is a more visible discussion about the implications of harassment and declining credibility in the field. Yeah, with real people, not just ideas. So with that, we'll take it away. Liz, thank you so much for joining us today. We are really excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So when did you first become interested in journalism? I became interested in journalism in college and really fell in love with the chance to talk to people and write down what they say and learn about all kinds of new things, go from story to story, always keep learning, trying to communicate things in an effective and interesting way. And here I am in the newsroom totem pole. I'm still somewhere near the bottom because I'm not an editor. And that's kind of a purposeful decision because reporting is hard to give up. It is so fun. Once you move on to editing, you don't really get to do it as much. I'm really trying to scratch all my reporting itches before I move on to editing. So let's keep the the track of your experience and lead us up into your work that you're doing today. Yeah, so I graduated from college. I went to work for a small local news outlet in D.C. We wrote every day, learning to work a beat and interview sources. And then that is also where I fell in love with investigative journalism, especially because I was writing about this billion dollar rail line project. It's still not done to this day. 10 years later, and started to learn some kind of fishy things about the board that was in charge of it. So I started looking into those and like asking questions and writing about it. I had no idea what I was doing at the time. Like, but I ended up the Secretary of Transportation was like, we have to reform this board. And he talked about it publicly and he credited our work. That was such a formative experience for me because it was like, wow, something really bad was happening. I uncovered it. And now there's going to be change. And What a thrill. I had an editor say to me, sometimes people work their whole careers and don't get that kind of real change. So that was really inspiring and kind of set me on a course. Then I did a master's degree at American University and then went to work for the Center for Public Integrity. It's a nonprofit newsroom that does investigative reporting. For a long time, I was on the state's team. We would follow state politics and state-level lobbying, looking at things like money in politics, model legislation lobbying and kind of trying to see what was happening at the state level. Turns out it's really important what state legislatures do, everybody. So I did that for a number of years. And then last few years, I started venturing more into pharmaceutical lobbyists at the state level. Pharma is everywhere. It's just crazy. And so I started writing a lot about that. I did a series of NPR on what were all these pharma lobbyists doing in state legislatures with regard to Medicaid and how they were influencing the process and kind of like making their drugs make more money at the state level. That series won a Loeb Award and was my first real success in getting something really nerdy like Medicaid policy into a narrative that was important and and people responded to it. Since then, I've done a lot more health things. And before that, I too, I did a big series on opioids with the Associated Press. So when COVID hit, I'd already done some health reporting. And I mean, you were just glued to the news. It was crazy. 
immediately I was like, we have to cover this. I know we do long-term investigative reporting, but we've got to find some short scoops we can do because the world is changing so quickly before our eyes. So my editors were like, yeah, sure, let's go for it. And so I started digging around and a couple guys and I worked on something about like how many ventilators we had in the national stockpile and got that exact number when no one had it. And later on was like, we were talking about hospitals overflowing and what would happen when they needed to triage care. So I like went through all these state policies on triaging care, essentially, and rationing care and found that a lot of them had some of this old school language that was detrimental to people with disabilities that they would have been put at the back of the line, which is mind-blowingly bonkers and awful. So I did that until summer. Summer, I had a source give me a document. And it was a document showing that in a ton of states and cities and counties, they were looking at the numbers, the numbers were bad, and they were telling them they needed to take stricter measures, the COVID task force. But they were not advertising this document. It was basically Dr. Burks and her team of experts. She'll say this now that the Trump administration is over. She wasn't allowed to talk to the media, essentially, for a long time, except for local media. Nowhere had it been publicized. No one was talking about it. And over the course of reporting, like, it came out that like mayors who were trying to make some decisions on the city level didn't have access to this document and didn't have the advice that these federal experts were putting together and the data they were putting together that was sometimes it was like nowhere else that you could get this data. We published that in a big exclusive and then started collecting these weekly reports. So I just collected them every week from everywhere. We put them on Document Cloud, which is a nonprofit service and just let other local reporters use them. That was a big effort. Train local reporters like how to use them, what they say, and like get the word out about them. Like this is what it says about your community. And so was trying to reveal basically what the Trump administration's own experts were saying about what the pandemic that they weren't willing to publicize because at that point, the right had shifted enough that they didn't want to make it seem like they were big, bad pandemic enforcers. My last story this last year before I went on maternity leave was about vaccine influencers and the kind of folks who are against vaccines and make money off of being against vaccines. So they sell supplements or books or courses, that kind of thing. And at the same time, spread a lot of misinformation about vaccines and kind of digging into some of their stories and what they do and who they are. And they reached out to people and said, would love to talk to you for the story. You know, I want to be fair and like try to give as complete a picture of this particular couple as possible. And that email was taken and there was nothing weird about that email. It's very normal reporting. We do an interview. Infowars and this other kind of like fringe website did this story about it with my phone number and everything. And so then we had people posting our home address and the name of all my relatives on Infowars and it was awful. But thankfully, Center for Public Integrity was very supportive and we went through some security measures and everything. People can call me, you're a fat cow all day long. That does not bother me. But personal information that could harm my children is too much. Um, Mm -hmm. That is the story of my COVID coverage. It's a good foundation for launching off from Joanne. I want to pass over to you. I've got plenty of follow-up, but I want to pass over to you first. Yeah. Now that we have a really clear understanding of what some of the challenges are, Liz, there is something even more sensitive to being in these early child-rearing days and having all of your personal information uh, shared. It can be a huge disincentive for people to not want to get involved. And then what does that do for our democracy, right? I personally am interested in talking to you about the two parts about 
healthcare in particular. So one, you started with deep investigative series, then you sort of talk about why you wanted to move to a more frequent like pulse on what was happening because it was unfolding so quickly and sort of like the patient role in this and the public role along with the healthcare institutions and what's required of a journalist in that environment. So you obviously have to know your audience, but you also have to know quite a bit about the medical establishment and pharma companies and politics. There are a lot of different stakeholders that you're considering. That's an interesting part of the discussion that ties into this larger wheelhouse that Sarah and I have been working on in considering what makes a thriving society. Because oftentimes people think about the media, they think about the media as the enemy. They don't necessarily think about the media and its role in sharing critical information, things like health <laughs> and pandemic information. I, I can quickly say there's different types of investigations. There's big project where you do everything ahead of time and you have the big reveal and you've worked on it for a year and it's awesome. There's rolling investigations where you're doing a story and waiting for more tips to come in or more information and reactions and keep building as you go along. There's reasons to do each one. And with the coronavirus, everything was just shifting so quickly. Even our scoop on the number of ventilators and the national stockpile, like actually a few months later, it really didn't matter that much because we were relying less on ventilators to treat. We we're proning people and doing different things in the ICUs at that point. So we had to go quickly because we could work on something and a couple months later, it'd be irrelevant. But I still think that, that those deep dive investigations where you do spend months working on something and getting to know everything about a particular setting or story or the sources is incredibly valuable. And that's a lot of what my nonprofit newsroom does. And it's so valuable because it's really hard to fund on a profit model. It's just incredibly expensive. And not only like paying for the reporters, but a lot of our stories involve travel, they involve data, which we end up having to pay for. They involve a lot of supportive expertise in terms of engagement with social media and everything like investigative journalism is just an expensive endeavor. And so it's a valuable thing that society has to support either with their subscriptions or donations or whatever. It's a huge asset to society that needs to be held up and realize that like it's a valuable thing that people need to be grateful for because it really helps our society, but also realize it you can't be free. Like so many people are like, well, I would read it if it weren't behind the paywall and not that we have a paywall, but I mean, out on the internet and that's why it exists. The paywall is why it exists. So anyway, that's my spiel. But yeah, I, I just, that long-term investigative work is just really rare and it's really hard to do and it's really expensive. And so support the organizations that are doing it for sure. It might be helpful to just tell us about the Center for Public Integrity. Yeah, the Center for Public Integrity is a small nonprofit newsroom in Washington, D.C., and it was founded about 30 years ago by a man named Chuck Lewis. And it did a lot of big investigative data work back in the day that no one else had the time or the ability to do. So this was before you could go online and see exactly what every industry gave to every politician. Center for Public Integrity did that and categorized that back when I had to just like do interns doing data grunt work all day long. And the last couple years, we have shifted our focus as an organization to cover inequality. And so my work has only kind of 
loosely been about health inequality so far, but as we kind of move forward, we're focusing more and more on racial and economic and other forms of inequality that kind of drag society down. And it's a great newsroom. It's a lot of experienced journalists who've passed through its doors. I can't tell you how many alums I've met who have spent time at the Center for Public Integrity. For a long time, it was well known for its money and politics coverage. Now it's known for its really good investigative stuff that takes a lot, a long time to do. That's helpful. Something we've definitely been exploring in this series is is the structure and, and funding aspect of journalism overall. It'd be interesting to hear you actually speak more to that dynamic playing out specifically in the coronavirus work to, to give us a better idea of why does it matter and even that like very quick impact with something as urgent as the coronavirus. Journalism or nonprofit journalism in particular? Both in investigative reporting too and oh. that bigger picture of like why is it expensive but also why does it matter? Covering the coronavirus, there are so many helpful stories that were told and really great writing that was done. Ed Young of The Atlantic, I mean, deserves all the accolades he has gotten just explaining, you know, to us. We Now, we all know what social distancing is and we all know what variants are because we've been reading all this great journalism about science. And so explanatory journalism, science journalism had a huge role. And then just your day-to-day what's happening, also very important as is normal. And then the investigative side of things where I spend my time working is what's going wrong here? Like who should be doing their job that isn't doing it? What is the federal government's responsibility? Like, what are they legally are supposed to be doing? What are people expecting of them, American citizens, that they're not doing? And how do we illustrate that and show that? Which is, investigative journalism is hard to do because you're always pointing out a problem, right? And you're saying, like, you guys failed at this, or you did something wrong. And so you have to come with receipts on that. And so the coronavirus, it's a crisis. Like, obviously, people are going to mess up. We saw that with the early testing failures. And so really explaining like how those problems happened and what the government could have done better, essentially. I mean, I wrote at one point about the data system that was underpinning a lot of the decisions that the federal government was making. And it was stuff that hadn't ever been reported before. But it was also interesting to me because the CDC had, had literally spent millions years ago on all these data computer systems to try to do the exact same thing that they weren't able to do when the pandemic hit. And so they had to build something totally new and spend a ton of money. And those kinds of failures that are like important because they matter for the current pandemic, for the next pandemic, and also like taxpayers are paying a lot of money for this. But in terms of actual impact, keeping accountable nursing home chains and hospitals and other people where decisions are being made that might be being made for profit motives or different things like that, that actually affect whether people live. So there's a huge role in a crisis like that for investigative journalism and governors, state legislatures, leaders of all sorts who are making decisions that affect people's lives need to be held accountable and you need the light shining on those areas. Mm. It's so powerful to hear you explain it in that way, particularly that coronavirus has shed a light on that process in terms of investigative journalism and its direct impact on the public and how investigative journalists can be such advocates for and are advocates for the general public and for the people. And tying that back into the funding model of like, well, so yes, this is why there's a paywall and why you should pay for it. There's such direct impact in terms of how it can impact your life. 
that's such a hard concept for the general public to really connect to, especially in the changing landscape of how media is produced and consumed. And, and that can be hard for people to understand. The coronavirus has illuminated that process in investigative journalism. Lives are at stake in these environments and who is part of making sure that the best decisions are made. Journalists are obviously a, a, a critical component. Of, yeah. yeah. And I, I want to be clear too, there's a role for advocacy journalism in terms of people being up front with like, we're a magazine and our shtick is that we care about libertarianism or Israel. But CPI, Center for Public Integrity, and I, the only thing that we are committed to being advocate for is transparency and everything else we're very much believe in doing down the middle of the road journalism that is trustworthy and accessible to all. We have so many people saying that you can't trust the liberal media and everyone's just a Democrat who works in DC. And that's not true. There are a lot of old school, good reporters who work for places like the Associated Press and the Washington Post and Center for Public Integrity that are really just trying to provide the facts and are not trying to advocate for anything. You're just trying to tell you what the truth of the situation is. And, you know, one of the things that you guys had talked about in an earlier podcast was losing the ability to talk to each other and have, not having a shared language and lexicon. And I think not having shared news sources is one of those things that's fueling polarization in our society. And also just people are not on the same page in terms of reality and what they think is credible. And part of that is because news sources have lost a lot of trust from the people. Having that old school role of like, at least trying to, even if you're failing, trying to give down the middle of the road journalism, not be an advocate for anything is incredibly valuable and important. I don't know that it'll survive 10 more years, but still trying to do it. Before we get into that question deeply, there was something that I wanted to say a little bit earlier, and it was more in regards to to healthcare and not necessarily governments. You focused on CDC and the government's role and in particular this mm -hmm. pandemic. But when you think about journalism and say the healthcare industry, there are some some parallels. And rather than calling it journalism, we should call them media organizations or publishers, right? So the industry and institutional leaders who use their position of dominance often do that to serve their own needs. Like they're there to maintain the status quo or to, to generate more of the same in many cases. So in this conversation a little bit earlier, I was sort of hinting at the fact that healthcare has been very change resistant. That could be said of a lot of organizations, including media more generally. I also wanted to clarify that this particular season is dedicated to reporters and journalism and not necessarily to the industry of the media. So with that said, <laughs> I'd love to, to go back to this concept of the future of journalism. And, you know, as somebody who's been working in this field and spent her whole career as a reporter, it'd be really interesting to hear what your perspective is. What is the future of the media and of journalism? You gave us the dystopian version. 10 years from now, this yeah. whole thing's going to be gone. Now give me the other version. There oh, are many God. scenarios. Every journalist is a miniature media critic. <laughs> I have my own thoughts. It's definitely not something I've reported on. I will say I consume a lot of 
news about the industry, people just don't know what's going to happen. You know, like everybody thought paywalls would never work and they have. And everybody thought podcasts were going to save journalism and video journalism was going to be the next thing. BuzzFeed News did this whole pivot to video. And then a few years later, they were laying all their video journalists off. And none of these things have turned out to be Everybody's wrong about everything, essentially. Everything's an experiment still because social media is changing the media landscape so quickly. Ever since the internet, news organizations have had to adapt rapidly or perish, and they're just going to have to keep doing that, whether that's telling stories on whatever the next TikTok is or finding ways to get through impenetrable government blockades of information. There's just always going to be things that the journalism industry is going to have to face. Nonprofit journalism is dependent on philanthropy, which you all addressed in your last season. It's the center, I know, is largely funded by foundations and always trying to get more individual giving, but it's an uphill battle. And there's some places like ProPublica, they're pretty well funded compared to others, but others are, you know, struggling. There's a lot of small nonprofit newsrooms and state houses now that try to provide some of that state level reporting that has gone gone away. Yeah, basically, I, I feel like nonprofit newsrooms are doing great work, and they're ripe for more investment, whether that's going to happen, and whether those investments will get made, and whether for profit journalism will be able to keep up. You know, I just have no idea. We'll see. But I do think on the polarization part of it, it's just getting almost untenable. I talked to someone early in the pandemic who was a friend, and I think about this a lot. He said that he no longer trusts anything that he doesn't see with his own eyes or friends who are in his life directly have told him. He doesn't believe any anything he reads on the internet, any media source, anything a politician says, only what he himself knows, which is a very limited way to live in the world. I mean, if, if that's the case, then you have no way of knowing that index funds do really well over time or anything. It, it's just you can't function really as an adult in our modern era. But that level of kind of hatred of all kind of outside information sources is I think a lot more common than we realize. Media organizations, as much as we like to blame the people reading the news, like they should have more balanced media diets and stuff. We also have to do more work to earn people's trust and being more transparent about how our work gets done. This is what I do all day. I like I call different government offices and ask them questions and like try to get them to send me spreadsheets so I can see if they're telling me the truth. I think there's a lot more room for trust building in the media space, which, yeah, I'm always excited when I see projects and people doing stuff like that and kind of going behind the scenes and showing people like, this is how we put the story together. And like Tampa Bay Times, they do so many creative things. And one of their recent projects they spelled out like, this is how much it costs to do this story. And here was all the things we paid for to make this story happen, which I thought was really smart. Well, it's interesting what you brought up about this friend who he says is only going to believe what he knows from someone he knows, because that strikes me as a collectivist society. Like a a lot of collectivist cultures will only accept someone who is brought into that circle from another trusted entity. So it literally is the social capital currency before modern times, right? Before we had, I'm not even talking about so much smartphones, but even before the telephone and before we had international news desks and and bureaus. So we're sort of like going back maybe a century, maybe a little bit less than a century. And I'm thinking of this in particular because 
of the recent fall of Kabul and how they've been locked out of the financial system. So people are now, well, they're still reliant on remittances from overseas, somebody sending money and then them putting it into the domestic currency. Sometimes that works and sometimes that doesn't because of demand. But also what people are doing is trading and they only trade within a network of people that they know. And the same is true of sending cash through uh, non-third-party systems like, say, Western Union and, and MoneyGram. There are also these private dealers who only work with family and friends that they know. So I'm not saying that the news is the same, but it is a form of it, it's information, right? So it has value. Information is power. So now we're back talking about social capital and power. So as discouraging as it, it may have been to hear this person confide in you that he believes nothing other than what he sees with his own eyes and also through people that he already knows, I do think we're getting back to basics, at least in this part of the conversation. Some of those basics are things that Sarah and I were interested in exploring earlier. So we started with entrepreneurship, we looked at philanthropy, and still we're looking at sort of trusted networks and yeah. how people make decisions. And that's really part of what you do, right, Liz? Yeah. Like you give people information so they can make a decision. Yeah, definitely. People need good information to make good decisions. And that's why the press is so vital to a democracy, because you can't make decisions about who to vote for if you don't know anything about them, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the erosion of civil institutions is a hallmark of our era. People don't trust government and they don't trust academia and they don't trust the church and they don't trust any kind of institutional knowledge as much anymore. Science and journalism is one of those really where we're kind of seeing stepping away from these things that make society flourish of people deinstitutionalizing their lives at large. It's kind of sad because all those things are good things that have made America stronger. I'm babbling on now. You can cut that part. No, this is this is really good. We're, yeah, we're at the agree. conversation portion. It's really interesting. There's a number of things in there that I'm intrigued by. The trust building and something you said there, Liz, was good decisions are made on, on good information. The metric that people have for understanding what is good information is part of what they're trying to reorient around. And someone's response, like your friend, of cutting out so many of the opportunities for good information. And maybe there's, you know, bad information in there too. But in that sort of holistic, like, I'm just going to cut this off, is a recalibrating. Whether that's a one that I would choose or not is different. But at its core, it's like, what are the metrics for understanding what is good information? And that, I think, calls back on a lot of larger understandings of the world. Like, how do you actually orient your paradigm for filtering any information that then impacts your life and, and the decisions that you make. You calling out all the institutions that have been a big part of how we as humans navigate information or gather information and how public perception is shifting around them is critical. What is really challenging, particularly for journalism as one of those institutions that you're calling out, is it, it, it has sort of a dual, it, it's sort of two-sided coin. It is meant to produce information and also needs to have the trust necessary to be considered worthy of that information. That, that That's true in other institutions as well, but there's something even more sort of intertwined for journalism in particular in terms of how do you hold the transparency and trust building and present the information that is just true, even if people don't like it. That is a hallmark of our time. That's what people are trying to yeah navigate or reconcile for themselves. 
Yeah, and I think we're both talking about the crisis and epistemology that this country seems to be going through, like how we know what we know and how we know whether to trust it. It just permeates so many of the conversations that we're having at this moment in politics. And there are so many people are deciding that they prefer other forms of information. The natural health guru who posts on Facebook is now more credible than scientists who studied and has a PhD and have seen the coronavirus in the lab. People are struggling to figure out how do I determine whether this is credible or not and how I shape what I believe. And I feel like people don't know this, but like there are so many good reasons to trust journalists aside from their saying, trust me, like our organization issues corrections when we're wrong. Your neighbor on Facebook doesn't do that. I will be fired if I manipulate information for profit or for gain. There's so many levels of accountability that's built into every single professional newsroom. And it's more than just my word on the line. It's this whole organization. And I, I wish people had more of a sense of that. It would help kind of navigate some of this crisis of trust. But you're so, also talking about a crisis of education. Because I want to go back, this is a conversation at this point about polarization, and it's also this perception that when you're in the hot seat, as you are as a journalist, you start to feel the negative voices, the ones who are non-believers, more than you feel the people who are reading your reports faithfully every week, every day that something comes out, right? I mean, so much of social media is the squeaky wheel getting the platform. And so it's really challenging, but I I also think that this was always there, the distrust in government, the distrust in large institutions. This existed during the Nixon administration, let's say, when we had kind of a big crisis. And it was different because it was decentralized. It was not all available with like the click of Facebook or Google. So you look at the population, you look at high school attrition rates, you look at college rates, and you think about who those people are and how, in the end, all these search engines operate on a network effect. So you have an exponential number of people who are elevating an exponential number of people who do not have an informed opinion, who do not have access to facts. So I wanted to just break it down a little bit because there are two parts of our conversation. One is just hearing from a journalist who's been really like beaten day in and day out by the naysayers, right? You are just bombarded. They're stalking you. They're publishing your information. They're just treating you horribly. You're not getting fan mail. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but you're just not hearing from those people as frequently as you are from the people who don't believe you because they've made it their mission to go out and discredit people who are doing credible work. These things all existed. It just, before, they didn't have this network effect that's available with the internet. That's totally fair. Before, if you were angry, you wrote a letter to the editor and it had to be kind of cogent to get published. And now you can just tweet at me and tell me that I'm a liar. And I'm like, okay. And it could be a bot tweeting at you at that. It could be somebody's bot army. It could be, you know, people set up in a room by a foreign government. There's thousands of them and their job is to attack Liz today. Let's ruin Liz's day. But seriously, this happens, right? Like we, we know that that's a thing too. And that's a really interesting twist because it's one thing to talk about this domestically, what's happening here in the United States. But when you factor in the influence of foreign governments 
and other, let's say, businesses who do want to discredit the work of journalists here to sow doubt and chaos, what then? It's hard for everybody to have this shared version of reality, even Mm. the people who are, let's say, on the front line doing the work. Yeah. Also, your point about accountability, Liz, that's so critical. I don't think people really give enough credit to how accountability works and how that's built into the infrastructure, what that actually means, what that produces, and how that system requires so much more effort and energy than the discredited system. That's huge. I, I think people a lot of times look at it as, oh, my local newspaper went away. But that's okay because the police department is now posting their updates on Facebook and the mayor is telling me what he can he's doing on Twitter or whatever. And that's true. And in some ways, the pony festival is at 7 p.m. on Wednesday. That information still gets out. But that level of accountability of actually the mayor spent $100,000 on the pony festival and 90000 of it went to his little LLC that he has doesn't get done if you don't have journalism and strong institutions that can back that up. Yeah, definitely accountability is the, the piece that can't get replaced by just social media. Yep. Very well said. That's critical. We've talked quite a bit about the role of journalism and what, at its core, it is meant to do. And communicating information is, of course, a key part of it. But the accountability part gets lost sometimes when we're in this world of a plethora of information. And so it might seem like we have what we need because we have the information, but that's not necessarily true. You've really demonstrated in this conversation how that component plays into this larger ecosystem. And so thinking about its then connection to society and what is required or or the conditions necessary for a thriving society, accountability and transparency is essential. And how does that happen? The ability to do whatever little part we can do in (laughs) advancing that narrative and helping people better understand how that works, speaking for myself, is something I hope we can help advance because it's so, so important. Yeah, I can cheerlead investigative reporting all day long. And I think that like so many local journalists are toiling to keep their papers alive and and get some investigative flavor in there and not just, you know, repeat what the the spokesmen are saying. And it's hard work and it's thankless work and they get paid very little. So subscribe to your local paper, everybody. The other part of what we were talking about with accountability is incentive. So we haven't looked at the opposite side of that, right? So it's one thing to say we want transparency, we want accountability, but then if we find that to be of value to society, whether that's in the form of a democracy or some other form of government, how do we design incentives for people to participate in what Sarah described as this contribution that she wants to make to society or what this podcast is designed to do, like illuminate conversations with credible people who are working and making a contribution toward a more stable society. What are the incentives for transparency? What are the incentives for accountability? Yeah, I mean, at some level, it's um, 
just a basic realization of I would like to have a functioning government and I need to figure out information about that government and who's going to provide the information. Wanting to be an active citizen and not just passively take things in. And But I agree with your earlier comment that a lot of it has to do with education too and those critical thinking skills. A podcast that Bloomberg did on vaccine influencers and the anti-vaccine crowd. It was very interesting. And they had this moment in one of their episodes where they were talking to this woman. She seemed like a really sweet woman, but she considered herself like a really critical thinker and researcher. And she did all her own research and that she wasn't taking anti-vax stuff on face value. But they asked her this question about one of the largest anti-vaccine nonprofit groups that puts out a lot of anti-vaccine literature. And she thought that that group was pro-vaccine because of its name. She didn't have enough critical thinking awareness to realize that just because they're called the National Vaccine Information Center doesn't mean they're pro-vaccine. They're actually very anti-vaccine. Even hearing this woman who knew a lot about the issue and read and thought thought of herself as a somewhat of an expert, not even realizing that her source was kind of trying to deceive her with the way it had titled itself. It just highlights kind of the dangers and how hard it is for people too, even if they are relatively well-educated to navigate misinformation and the social media landscape these days. And we all became instant experts in epidemiology with the coronavirus. And it's <laughs> difficult to you know, parse through some of that sometimes. Speaking of incentives, that organization chose the name for that exact purpose, right? As far as incentives go, right? Like they knew what they were doing with that strategic decision. And I think that is a great example of how hard it is. Pointing that out is actually important for this discussion is just recognizing that this is work. What you're really talking about is civic engagement that is important and should be taken seriously and is not easy. It can have sort of a counter impact of not wanting to engage because it is hard. That is also valuable just to recognize that it is a tricky landscape out there. And so, yeah, be careful, maybe. Yeah. And the point about education, that's why we have free public education in this country, right? So our democracy will continue to survive. People need to be able to make educated choices about the things that we're deciding as a people. And if we can't anymore, does that mean democracy goes away? It might. We'll see. I know I'm on the dystopian track, but yeah. I think to something you said earlier, Liz, the incentive being a functioning government, there are people who grew up with a narrative that there is no such thing as a functioning government. People who were born here, who have been taught to live independent of that government, and they'll say something like, I've never taken a dime from the government. And then you ask them, really, how did you drive to work today? And they say, I drove my own car. I say, did you drive on a road? Was there a stoplight? Okay, then you, in fact, have benefited from the government's presence. Did your mail get delivered? It's, it's as if this component of civic engagement is missing. Maybe it's something that needs to start sooner in, in schools. With education, then again, not everybody is educated in public school either. It's an offering, it's open, but given what we just went through with the pandemic, there are a lot of people who have not returned to larger public institutions. This is a complex unfolding problem, and there's nothing we can do to incentivize the folks who don't aspire to have a functioning government. 
other than point to examples of other countries where there is no government and ask them if they'd like to go there, right? Like, let me see. Do you want to have money? Do you want the stability and independence of living within your own home, in your own town, where you have your family and you're relatively safe? Or would you like to live in a place with absolutely no government? And some people haven't really considered what that means. Yeah. But actually your freedom to make those choices is significantly more limited. You actually will have less of an ability to move around and make those choices with less of a government. Yeah. But they've got a Facebook account, Sarah. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) To your point, Joanne, a big part of that too is this idea of what's shared reality and how we get on the same page of things. It is really interesting when you can have very core shared dynamics with someone who comes to very different conclusions. And that is not inherently bad, but then what does that actually mean for how we live together? That's the core of this question is we have to figure out what does that mean? How do we actually navigate that? And it's hard work. It's not going to be easy. Your point of what, what are these incentives? What are we driving towards? Hopefully, one piece where we can start to see more alignment from people with very different ideas of reality is can we move towards a shared desire for a thriving society as a starting point? When you say hard work, I want to just sort of expand on that because you said that twice. Who is the audience that you're saying that to? Are you saying that to our listeners? Is that Mm. to me and Liz? Mm. Is that to people in positions of power and authority? Mm. Whose work is that? It's a good question. The first answer is that's everyone's, but it's different work. When I reference that, it's much more for the average citizen. And we all have the citizen role. Even the people that you're talking about may have other roles in which this work shows up. But the starting point is we all have the work as a citizen of this society, your local community. And that's the first place I'm talking or referencing the work. So you're suggesting personal accountability. I just want to get this on the record. Is that is that right? <laughs> you're <laughs> suggesting people take responsibility for their perspectives. Okay. I just just checking. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah, that would that would be part of it. <laughs> I'm just checking the logic, you know. It's a very it's a complex world. There's a large diverse population. I wouldn't say that we necessarily have that as our base listener group per se, but just for clarification, it's important for people to understand when we say we or they, that it's not just some person who's been anointed, but that everybody has their role to play. That That's actually a really good point, especially in what we're exploring here on the podcast. What is your role? And we're giving the opportunity to hear from other people who have decided or, or figured out what that is, what they're contributing to your point earlier, Joanne. That's really important to be able to hear all the different places in society, how people are contributing and what that means, how that impacts your life as someone who lives in that society. To tie that back into this particular conversation in this season, getting to see how journalists are choosing to contribute in their way is really powerful. And Liz, you've created a really impactful and helpful way of seeing what that looks like. That your earlier point of journalists have made a commitment to this work that is often thankless and doesn't pay very well. Should in fact itself 
be part of the credibility built into the work that they do. But this is hard work. And it's so true. And it does not pay well. And so to choose to dedicate your life to it should be a big part of how we understand it to be valuable and credible. So I guess that is in some ways a lead into saying thank you for the work that you do, Liz, in in this shared desire for a thriving society. Well, I always feel awkward when people say that because, yeah, I accept it, but also it's really fun. (laughs) H.L. Mencken, who was kind of a terrible guy in a lot of ways, but he said journalism is the life of kings. Mm. And I agree. (laughs) It's It's a good job. I love that. Meaningful work can really make life meaningful. That's what you're getting at. This is work worth doing. The way you're wrapping it up, Sarah, is really beautiful. And Liz, thank you so much for your time and all that you've shared with us and our audience. This is going to be really valuable contribution to the season. Yeah, thank you so much, Liz. Well, thank you so much to both of you. Good luck with everything. One of the things that I thought was interesting was our dialogue around accountability with Liz, which is one of the core contributing concepts that we explore in this conversation that is part of the larger landscape of this season. And I I think we've touched on it in other episodes, but I, I, I really think we got an opportunity to dig in deeper into what that means and what that looks like. And I think part of that is because it's coming from an active investigative journalist and that I think is the first person so far that we've talked to specifically in that role. It's interesting because I felt like she leaned out of that a few times, maybe Mm. because she's been working on the pandemic. Yeah. What she is doing is crisis reporting. I do think that she's trained in a more classic investigative style. Right. And that certainly lends itself to crisis reporting, which is the art of telling a story in the moment. So she has all these facts and she has spreadsheets and experts that could come out as like a really dry presentation of facts, but she's a professional. Mm -hmm. And so she is also trained in the art of telling the story and telling a compelling story that will get, you know, readers not only attention, but give them context to understand the visuals. Sometimes it is a graph. Sometimes maybe it is a photo, but but there's an art to this, and it's not something that a first-year uh, reporter mm. is necessarily going going to be able to deliver. Right. So there are places for young emerging reporters, places like, say, even Report for America or the Ground Truth Projects, yep. um, those kinds of groups. And then there are, you know, institutions uh, like the Center for Public Integrity. Yeah. And I think that maybe sometimes that's one of the things that's so confusing mm-hmm. for the average person is to separate the media from reporters. Yes. And if you think about television, my closer relationships to reporters and journalism growing up would have been framed by 60 Minutes and mm. Sunday Morning and like these sort of anchors, yeah. <laughs> you know, Peter Jennings and Barbara Walters and these people who were able to almost be celebrity journalists right. who had that authority. And in, in many ways, that is one of the things that's working against 
really talented investigative journalists today is their ability to build up that kind of following and mm. to have ownership of of their reporting. Yeah. Which goes back to trust and accountability. And that happens. Your distinction there is that can happen for a journalist, despite the publication that they are you know, releasing under. And that can happen for publications, despite the specific journalists reporting those stories. And that itself is an important distinction as a consumer of the media or consumer of news is that those are different things. And that's not a bad thing, but just that those are different things. Or they have trouble thinking about their thinking, yeah. right? Like they know they're going to turn on NPR and they're going to take a drive. Okay, fine. That Maybe that's what they do every time they get in the car to go to the grocery store when they go to work. But then there will be other people who will only, you know, turn something on, whether it's their phone and read mm -hmm. the paper, maybe they still get a traditional paper, maybe there's a magazine delivered. They only, they only check in to those sources at, at different points. For, for Liz, one of the really eloquent examples was talking about how people see themselves as subject matter experts and sometimes get it wrong, Yeah, like, even though they think they're using critical skills. And that's one of the benefits of an organization, a nonprofit organization like Center for Public Integrity, is that when people go out on a deep dive looking for facts, looking for the big picture, that they can find trustworthy sources that are cited across other evidence-based mm. institutions, right? right? Like there's not just one accounting of that work. Mm, yeah, the cross-referencing and how that actually builds a stronger net of trust and accountability. Right. And when people understand evidence-based methodologies, they know that, okay, when something's researched, it might be researched at one university, but then it has to be tested and validated across a number of others. And right. the job of these other universities is really to poke holes in this and like mm -hmm. see if it stands up. And you know, the same can be true in reporting where somebody might break a story, but then as time goes on, that story changes. Yeah. It might not even be an editorial correction per se, because they may have reported on the facts as they were. And it might turn out that that source, maybe let's just say it's a government source, didn't have a complete investigation either and it's still pending. Well, then they have to update it. Now we have to decide, does the person who heard the story last week, who hears the story this week, feel lied to mm -hmm. simply because they didn't know, was it an honest mistake or, ooh, was it a conspiracy, right? Like that's the world we're living in yeah. to some degree. It's very challenging because people's sense of time and space is condensed mm. with, with the world we live in. Yeah. Whether that's because we're doing it to ourselves, it's, it's just part of, you know, it's part of the environment of nonstop digital life. Yeah. One of the interesting things you're saying there, too, is is the the active process of a story over time and its change. And that that's, in fact, a good thing. But I think that there is a growing attitude of that being a bad thing and that being a problem. And this, like sort of interesting and perhaps slightly strange or skewed perspective on things needing to be perfect in a certain way to be credible. And what the parallel I'm having here is like, I'm thinking about cancel culture and like people's behavior over periods of time. And like, what are the standards that we as a society are setting out for people to uphold? And journalism, I think in particular, has sort of like the front lines of the brunt of 
what we're expecting as a society. If told through the lens of social media, right? Yes. Cancel culture is very social media dominant. Exactly. Let's go deeper onto what you're saying. You're saying part of the trust breaks down when the story emerges. It's kind of what I said, right? Like somebody gets one story, they deliver it to the best of their knowledge with the facts that they have, with the people who were there or the people who made the decision or whoever the authority was. And then later it turns out that no, in fact- it's it this and not that. This other yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. And then there's a clarification. But this gets into modality, mm-hmm. right? So whether we're talking about television, when I say television, what I'm really talking about is video, right? We're talking about anytime you can see a person's face mm-hmm. and the words. We're also looking at tone and how the person like presents and expresses what they're delivering. Right. There is something to be said for the delivery. Otherwise, we wouldn't have had anchors, news anchors as a job, people out in the field reporting from the scene. That's also something that's really interesting to consider because it's not the same as sitting behind your desk and calling around to government authorities, asking them for records. That's very much investigative journalism where she's going to do a portion of her work at her desk. She's going to do a portion of her work in person as an interview, maybe through some other modality like a video. Mm. But whatever that is, if you read the story versus hear the story from a trusted source, you may respond differently. Mm. And a lot of the stories we're talking about are emotionally intense and complex. So you're not just giving people facts. You're tapping into people's primal response system fight or flight. They're traumatized. The news may be very upsetting. Mm -hmm. It may have direct impact in their lives. Mm -hmm. So when we think about that, for me, it's it's easier to say, I would rather deliver the message in person or at least with my voice than to write bad news to deliver to a close friend, right? right? I'm not talking about journalism per se, but like you have to consider not only the audience, but also the modality of how it's being delivered and what kind of news it is. Yeah, I think people used to fortify their news. It wasn't just like, okay, I'm going to read it in the paper. They'd read it in the paper. They'd listen to it on all these different network channels, maybe a cable channel. And then they might read about it in some other like magazine. You get all these different sources. But today it's like, oh, I saw this on Facebook. I talked to my friend and she said this, and you may not have talked to your friend. You may have messaged your friend and they were, you know, halfway out the door with, Mm. you know, a bag of groceries, who knows, whatever that might be. So there is something to be said about choosing the modality that we have to explore this particular discussion around society. And I think one of the things that we both shared was this value of the spoken word Mm. And voice, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. of voice's ability to convey meaning, even when the words alone might not. Right. Maybe the words are impartial, but you hear the person's tone of voice, and now suddenly you feel something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and dialogue, which is a different modality as well. Like we could have a produced version of these conversations that aren't the actual conversation, or extracting the information and then repackaging right. it and producing a podcast that would just look different. But yeah, we're also landed on having conversations with people and that being another way of communicating information 
that has something that I think is perhaps a little closer to what you're talking about in terms of collectivist cultures and the transfer of information. I think that dialogue and conversation obviously is a form that we really value as humans. And so part of what I think is really interesting about the podcast and our choice of going in this particular form is that we want to use that particular modality and and its value in our society as just a way that we communicate with each other. That's itself interesting in this larger conversation of journalism and how information is spread. We can't separate this from for-profit newsrooms. Mm, Yeah, keeping that in mind that this is a business. And so it operates in the way other businesses do. (laughs) Well, this is a business. The mainstream media is for profit. And then there are these other organizations that are non-profits, such as public radio, such as any number of of NGO we can point to here that has existed and continues to exist without sponsorship Mm -hmm. from a private entity Mm -hmm. or without ratings, let's say. Even today, the way content is, I would say, incentivized or promoted depends on influence, right? Mm -hmm. Like you get more ratings by having more followers, but you could buy followers and you could buy ad space if you're a billionaire or a huge company and you want to promote one certain narrative. Google was all about that. I mean, they were profiting from people engaging with certain types of content and that content going up and up and up the scale. Now, some of these practices have changed, they've evolved. And I would say at this point, all of the major tech players and platforms are well aware of what those challenges are. And they've taken some kind of decisive action to improve these practices so that it isn't only pay to play. But at the end of the day, they're still businesses. They themselves are not there for public benefit. They're not there for public benefit. They're not public benefit corporations to go back to like conversation with will and philanthropy. Right. Yeah. The, the model itself and the incentive structure, which calls back to our conversation with Liz, that matters, uh, of course, a whole lot. And part of it, if you're looking at the larger ecosystem of media, is that it's helpful to have multiple of those in the ecosystem because it can help with the checks and balances of it. It's not going to be one model. It shouldn't be one model. And that would be easier. That's maybe the challenge with it is it's going to be complex. And that's maybe what we want, even though that is also part of what makes it harder to navigate. A hundred percent we want complex. Yeah. The complexity is what allows for the greatest number of voices to be represented. Yep. And if we're living in this time where we're striving for a more representative society, one where everybody is able to share their interest, their lived experience as part of a stakeholder community, then we have to be open to complexity as part of the narrative. Yep. And the other thing that comes up for me on this topic of harassment that we didn't address, there are times when that harassment is a jaded reader. That's not really what we're talking about. When we're talking about the level of harassment that Liz was describing, there are financial stakes involved. That's a different matter. Yeah, exactly. When people benefit from misinformation by discrediting another source, that's a race to the bottom. Mm -hmm. It does point to there must be something wrong with the system and the way the incentives are working. If that is the case, something is wrong. Sure. Also known as corruption, right? Yes. Another enemy of democracy. Mm 
Thanks for joining us. I'm Joanne. And I'm Sarah. Join us for the next episode.